Well, this morning, we are going to finish Judges. Yay. I'm not sure exactly why somebody yelled yay. Um, Draw your own conclusions. Um, We aren't going to spend a ton of time. We we barely touched on Judges chapter 20 last time. We finished 19 and just barely dipped into chapter 20. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on Judges 20 this morning. I'm just going to kind of touch on a couple things that will get us up to date and put us into Judges chapter 21. And, um, And you'll remember, even though you may have tried to forget, right, the incident with the Levite and his concubine. You may remember they, they ended up spending the night in Gibeah and a group of men gathered trying to, basically they wanted to rape the guy. And the guy throws out his concubine, his girlfriend, right, to, to be raped instead of him. And over the course of the night, she gets raped and she dies and he hacks her body into 12 pieces, attaches a little note and FedExes it throughout Israel. And... All Israel was furious at what happened. So they gathered together and they're getting ready to go wipe out this whole city of Gibeah. They, you know, they say Gibeah has to be punished. And it says in verse 12, chapter 20, verse 12, and the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. So this is interesting to me. The men of the other 11 tribes, they gather, they confront the tribe of Benjamin, the leadership, and they say, hey, listen, Turn over these wicked men. Let's punish these guys and we'll just be, we'll be done with the matter. And the men of Benjamin said, these are our boys. We're not turning them over. We're not giving you anybody. And so it says that the men of Benjamin, they, they gathered with the men of Gibeah and they got ready for war. And I was just looking at this, and I think that there is an important lesson for us today in this this little situation, this little vignette here, right? These guys, the men of Benjamin, were putting their tribe over God. They were valuing their connections with their affiliation over their relationship with the Lord. And I think this is something that we see a lot in the church today. I think as a country, we are, I I don't think, it, it seems pretty obvious, that we are more politically divided than we have ever been. And even within the church, There's this huge political division. You know, people put their tribe, their political party, their political ideologies over their religious convictions. 
You know, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, right? As if being a liberal or being a conservative is more important than being faithful to God. And I think that that both sides of the aisle are are guilty of this and maybe different ways. I, I, I think that the left, generally speaking, supports some very unbiblical ideologies concerning abortion, concerning sexuality, concerning some of these things. And on the other side, the right, I think often gets this idea that because they hold conservative values that they're somehow more righteous, that they're closer to God. Listen, if you support leftist ideologies and are counting on that to save you, you are going to hell. If you support conservative ideologies and you're counting on that to save you, you're going to be joining your leftist counterparts in hell. You guys can have a tea party or something. Listen, politics, parties, ideologies, your tribe, they won't save you. They can't save you. Only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus can redeem our culture. And let me be perfectly clear. You know, I, I am definitely a right-leaning conservative. I'm not ashamed of that in the least. But politics don't take the place of Jesus. And so often we see people trying to shoehorn Jesus, shoehorn the scripture, shoehorn the, the gospel message into their particular ideology and political position. And man, I think that's wrong. I think that we need to serve and obey Jesus first and foremost. Our primary allegiance needs to be to Jesus, not to our party or our affiliation. And then we can align ourselves with ideologies that reflect our commitment to Jesus. You know, and honestly, the Democratic Party doesn't do that. The Republican Party doesn't do that, right? Parties don't represent Jesus. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be political as Christians. I'm just saying that if you try and pretend that your party is the Christian party, that's nonsense. That's foolishness because neither party is Christian, right? It's just, it's just the truth of the matter. And, and so I guess as long as we're talking about this, when it comes to voting, don't vote by party. Vote your Christian convictions. Vote issues. Vote platforms based on your relationship with the Lord and your understanding of Scripture. So as we move through chapter 20, we see that this civil war breaks out. Benjamin goes to war with the rest of Israel. And Benjamin gathers nearly 27,000 troops. And the rest of Israel puts forth almost 400,000 men. Now, I want you to understand something when we're talking about these numbers. 
right? It isn't as though Israel had a standing army of 400,000 men. It wasn't as though Benjamin had, you know, 27 battalions ready to go, right? These people didn't have professional militaries for the most part. When it's talking about these 400,000 men, they're farmers and blacksmiths and shopkeepers who are going to war. Basically, it's all the able-bodied men in the land. But it's interesting to note that Benjamin, it says, had 700 elite fighters. Verse 16, it says, who could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Right? So these fellows here may have been, you know, professional soldiers, right? Some sort of militia maybe or a, you know, a mercenary kind of force. But generally speaking, these guys going to battle, they're just guys, right? They don't really know what they're doing. And this civil war takes place, and it's an ugly, ugly civil war. Israel takes some heavy losses in the first couple days, and tens of thousands of men die. I was recently reading about Lincoln after the civil war was completed, and I think like, I don't remember the number, I think it was like, 570,000 soldiers died in the Civil War. Just this, this crazy amount. And when the North won, Lincoln didn't get up and gloat. But he was talking about how, how he believed that the Civil War was God's judgment on both the North and the South for allowing slavery to exist. And I was just thinking about that idea of judgment there. And I was reading one commentator who, who was suggesting that this civil war in Israel, similarly, it was God's judgment not only on Gibeah, but God was using this as, as judgment on the entire nation of Israel because the whole nation had slipped into sin and, and depravity at this point. And both sides... We're inviting the judgment of God on their people by the actions that they were taking, by the moral depravity in their cultures. And I was thinking about that, and I think that there's a good question in there for us to ask ourselves. As we are going through life, as we're doing the things that we're doing, right? And sometimes we suffer for those things. Are our sufferings or our difficulties, are they sent by God sometimes? You know, as, as believers, we are not under God's judgment. But we still face God's discipline, don't we? And fundamentally, as we've talked about before, <clears throat> judgment and discipline are different things. Right? Judgment is more punishment-oriented, right? And, and discipline is intended to be more corrective for believers. So judgment and discipline, fundamentally, they're different, but they kind of feel the same when you're in the midst of it, don't they? When you're getting spanked, you don't really know the difference, right? Judgment and discipline can feel the same, but the outcome is different. As I said, discipline is corrective, the purpose of discipline is to get us back on the right track. And so the question is, are you inviting the discipline of the Lord on yourself right now through your behavior, 
through your actions, through the way you're living your life, through doing things you shouldn't be doing and not doing things you should be doing, are you inviting the hand of discipline on you? You know, we need to be careful of that, I think. And, and here's something that's interesting, by the way. In verse 18, they go to inquire of the Lord at Bethel. You know, how should we do this, Lord? What tribe should go first? Who should lead us into battle? <clears throat> and the Lord responds, send Judah. Let Judah go in first. And they lose 22,000 men. The next day they go back, lose another 18,000 men. You know, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but here's what I see. The first couple times they're like, okay, Lord, this is what we're gonna do. Do you wanna bless it for us? Lord, we're gonna attack. Who should we send in to lead the pack? And I think that we can be a lot like that sometimes. We make a plan, we figure out what we're gonna do, and we say, Lord, this is what I'm gonna do. Will you bless this thing? Right? Instead of humbly searching out the Lord's will for our lives, instead of saying, Lord, what would you have me do? And then doing it, we decide what we're gonna do and ask God to bless it. And it doesn't always work. Verse 26, after these defeats. Then all the people of Israel went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So finally, this army, they came to the Lord weeping and fasting and praying and worshiping repenting of their sins and offering sacrifices for their sins. And at this point, the Lord says, okay, now we can get down to business. Now we can get some work done. Now your heart is in the right place. And he says, tomorrow, I will give them into your hand. And so the next day they go out to battle and as you read through it, they, they set this trap. The men, again, just like these other two times, they approach the camp of Benjamin. And the men of Benjamin, they say, all right, we've had great victory the last two days. Third time's a charm. We're gonna go and we're gonna whoop them again. And they run out and they engage the enemy. And Israel starts to retreat and Benjamin gives chase. But what they don't know is that Israel had split their forces into two columns. And the main column approaches like they did every other time, but the second column made a wide circle and slipped it around the city. And so when the men of Benjamin run out to engage Israel, Israel runs away and they start to give chase. And this second column moves in and they light the city on fire. And it says in verse 41, then the men of Israel turned and Benjamin were dismayed for they saw that disaster was close upon them. And as the chapter finishes, <clears throat> almost all the men of the tribe of Benjamin were wiped out in this conflict. 600 men survive out of 27,000. And they flee to this place called the Rock of Rimon. 
and they hide out there for four months until things cool down. Chapter 21, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. So take note of that verse, because that sort of sets the scene for the whole rest of the chapter, this foolish vow that these guys make. They say, we're not going to give any of our daughters to marry the men of Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before the Lord. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, oh Lord, the God of Israel, why, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? I don't know if I just have a little bit of a twisted sense of humor, but this strikes me as funny in sort of a weird Monty Python kind of way, right? They just get back home from slaughtering this whole tribe. They probably still got blood on their faces and they lift up their voices. Why has this happened? Well, you were there, remember? You killed them all. That's sort of why this happened. And it gets weirder as the text goes on. And the next day, the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord in Mizpah saying, he shall surely be put to death. Now I want to note that there seems like there's a lot of foolish vow taking going on here, right? The Lord wasn't telling them to make all these vows, right? This is their own doing. Now look at this whole scene in context. They say, Lord, why did you allow this tribe to perish? So let's kill whoever didn't help us wipe them out. This strike you as odd a little bit? And the people of Israel had compassion on Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? They say, oh man, we, we wiped out the whole tribe. We wiped out everybody. There's only 600 people left. You know, all these guys, they need wives so that the tribe of Benjamin can continue. But we promised that we wouldn't give them our daughters. What can we do? And they said, what one is there in the tribes of Israel that did not come up from the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So they say, is there anybody that didn't come fight with us? And you know, they unroll the scroll and they look at the records and they say, oh, this town over here, Jabesh Gilead, they didn't send anyone to fight. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword. Also the women 
and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Now please note, the Lord did not instruct these guys to do this. This is completely of their own volition, right? They're doing this all on the, their own. The Lord did not tell them to go to Jabesh Gilead and to wipe everybody out there, right? And it's interesting, they didn't even seem like they investigated it. You know, how come they didn't come? Maybe they didn't get word. Maybe the messenger sent to Jabesh got eaten by a lion or, you know, they, did, they didn't care. They said, look, this is the answer to our problem. We can go over to Jabesh Gilead and we'll just kill them all. We'll kill the men, we'll kill the women, we'll kill the children. We're just gonna save the young virgins. Now, let me just throw this out there. The people of God, and I'm sort of air quoting it there. The people of God can do some wicked, awful stuff sometimes. When people start making decisions on their own and then doing it in the name of God, ugly stuff happens. And we see that throughout church history, don't we? Church history is full of people claiming to be acting in the name of God and doing horrible, horrible things. And understand that just because somebody says they're doing it in the name of God, that doesn't mean that God is directing them. God did not direct the Crusades and the Inquisitions and the Holocaust and many of these terrible things that were done in his name. And we have to be able to separate those things. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimmon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. But they were not enough of them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. The people go out. They say, look, we're kind of sorry that we killed everyone you know and love. Let's make peace. And so Benjamin, and they're all camped out on a rock. So like, okay, I guess that's better than living here. So they come home, the few guys that are left, and Israel gives the women that they had spared when they attacked Jabesh Gilead. But, there's 600 dudes here and there's only 400 ladies. And note this, they blame the whole thing on the Lord, don't they? Just like we just talked about, right? They say, the Lord caused this thing to happen, but they're the ones that did it. And the irony isn't, it wasn't somebody else in history. They were literally the ones that caused this breach and then they blame it on God. And they say, the Lord has made this breach with Benjamin, so it's up to us to try and fix it. 
Then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives of our daughters for the people of Benjamin had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So this tale, it just keeps getting worse and worse, doesn't it? They say, look, the people need women to marry, to repopulate their tribes, and we can't give them our daughters, so we need to come up with a plan to give them somebody else's daughters. Verse 19, so they said, behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labana. And they commanded the people of Benjamin saying, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from among the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. That's why you shouldn't let your daughters go to dances. This is a weird story, isn't it? They say to the men of Benjamin, look, every year at Shiloh, there's this big festival. And all the young ladies, they're out there dancing, playing their tambourines in the vineyard. They're out there singing in the desert. It's Coachella, right? That's what's going on here. And they say, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hide in the bushes until you see a girl you like. And then just jump out and snatch her and run home as fast as you can before they catch you. Now listen, I know there's a few single dudes here today. Let me be clear. I'm looking at you, Isaac. <laughs> this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Right? This is just saying what happened. It's not telling you young men how to find a wife. Just so we're clear. None of this stuff that happened was commanded of the Lord. It was just a description of what was going on in that day. So don't go and put your ghillie suit on and hide out behind a tree at Edmonds Community College. Right? That's not what we're supposed to do. Verse 22. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us <clears throat> because we did not Take for each man from them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. The grammar's kind of weird there. He says, but look, we killed all the ladies and we needed wives and you're not actually guilty of breaking the vow because you didn't give your daughters to be their wives. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. 
the leaders say, look, when the dads and the brothers of these ladies come to seek justice for the little girls that were kidnapped, we'll just say, oh, come on. Just let them keep your daughter. It isn't your fault. You didn't break your vow. You didn't give them to the men of Benjamin. And so that's exactly how this thing unfolded. They kidnapped these women, made them wives. They went back and rebuilt their towns and repopulated the land of Benjamin. Now, let me just add a little note here, an observation. These men naturally assumed that when these little girls were wronged, that their dads and that their brothers were going to come running to their defense. Right? This is a talk that I have with my boys all the time. Now, I always tell my boys, listen, I don't want you guys getting into fights. I don't want you guys starting fights. I don't want you guys causing trouble. But, if anyone messes with your little sisters, or if anyone messes with your mom, there's a reason why you've been learning Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu for five years, right? If somebody messes with your little sister or your mom, you have full permission to knock them out. As men, our job is to defend the women in our lives. And, I, and my opinion, as I shared the other day, is, is it's not just, my obligation doesn't end as a Christian man with my wife or my mom or my daughters. I believe that as Christian men, our obligation is to help women and children in need. I'm convinced that that's a, a huge part of our Christian calling as men, is to stand in the gap and to protect the innocent and the weak and those who aren't strong enough to protect themselves. And the people of Israel, verse 24, departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So everyone goes home happy, except the families of those tens of thousands of men who died and the families of those little girls who were kidnapped and the little girls who were kidnapped. All right? Take a step back and look at this whole story, Judges 19, 20, and 21. This whole thing started because this concubine got raped and killed, which was absolutely tragic, as we saw in the story. But look what happened as a result of Israel's actions. All the people of Jabesh Gilead were killed. The men, the women, the kids, everyone except these young ladies. And we see these 600 women, they're taken against their will and they're forced into marriage. <clears throat> Many, I'm sure, resisted and were raped. Right? This tragedy in Jabesh Gilead, it 
started back in Gibeah. The sin in Gibeah started this whole chain reaction of sin and death. Now listen. That's always what happens, isn't it? Sin left unchecked starts a chain reaction. Sin always begets more sin. Sin, it spreads and it grows and it starts to take over. And that's why scripture says that we need to be ruthless with sin. We need to cut sin out of our lives. And I'm sure you've heard people use the example of cancer, right? Cancer left unchecked, it just spreads through the body, right? So if your doctor discovers that, that there's cancer, what, what do they do? They have to kill it. They cut it out. They remove it to save the rest of the body. And that's the same idea with sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 13, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I like the King James here. Look what the King James says. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye live through the spirit, but if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. I like that word mortify there. It means to kill, right? To put to death, to rub it out. That's the idea. And this passage in these three chapters, man, and sin is disgusting. And we see this picture of a society that's almost completely given over to sin. And look at the last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no one ruling over the people at this point. There's no one guiding the people, shepherding them, directing them. And everybody did what they thought was right. Now, I, I want to note that because I think that that's important. <clears throat> All these people, right? And this story is filled with, with, with utter depravity. And it seems like almost everybody in the story they thought that they were doing the right thing. They thought that they were walking uprightly before the Lord. And I think that that is so indicative of our culture today, isn't it? We look at our culture and there is so much depravity in our culture. There's so much wickedness. There's so much darkness in our culture. But most of the people engaged in that darkness they think that they're doing the right thing. They think that they're, they think that, I mean, I don't know how to express it, I guess. They, they think that they're good. Those that believe in God, maybe, believe that they're, they're acting on, on God's behalf. But they're doing what is right in their own eyes. Or if you talk to the most flaming liberal advocating for 
children transitioning from one sex to another, or the most flaming conservative who wants to completely close the borders and end any kind of social welfare programs, they all share the same conviction that they are doing the right thing. And they're passionately convinced of it, aren't they? That they're doing the right thing. And I think that we forget that sometimes in our, in our opposition to people. We forget that many people in their hearts and their minds, they're convinced that what they're doing is good and right. And it's not, and it doesn't excuse their actions, but, but I think it's important when we're trying to engage people and, and share the gospel, at least to understand their motivations, right? Understand where they're coming from. But look what it says in Hosea chapter four and verse six. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. He says the people are destroyed because they've rejected the truth of God's word. It reminds me a little bit of Romans chapter one. And I'm gonna read through about 11 verses. And um, I'm not really gonna comment much on it, but just listen to it and see if it doesn't remind you a little bit of our culture today. Romans one, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And likewise, men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who do practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That could be written about our culture today, couldn't it? The people persisted in their sin. In verse 24, it says, eventually, God gave them up to the lust in their hearts. Verse 26 says that God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
Verse 28 tells us that God gave them up to a debased mind. Some translations say a reprobate mind, a morally depraved mind. In all those instances, here's what happened. You know, God is, is, is trying to draw them to himself, trying to work in their lives, and they continually push God away. They continually reject God. And in all those instances, God finally says, okay, you do you. I hate that expression so much, by the way. You do you. You don't want to listen? You refuse to repent? You go and do what you want to do. I'm cutting you loose. And I feel like that's kind of an apt description of our culture, isn't it? As we close, I want to draw your attention back to chapter 20, verse 18. It's one of the few verses where it seems like the people are actually listening to the Lord here. It says, The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. People say, hey, who should lead us, Lord? And the Lord says, Judah. And it's interesting, throughout the Old Testament, the majority of times, it seems like Judah is the one who is leading the nation of Israel into battle. Judah is always leading the people in battle. And, and, and here's why that's interesting. There's a certain guy from the tribe of Judah, sometimes is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah, who leads his people into battle. Judah here, always leading the way into battle, I think it serves to remind us that Jesus is the one who's supposed to be leading us into battle. And it's only when we follow Jesus into battle that we'll find true victory. And in this story, even the people who followed Judah into battle, they weren't successful the first couple attempts because they hadn't spent time with the Lord. Because their hearts weren't right. They hadn't prayed. They hadn't worshiped. They weren't walking in repentance of their sins. And what happened? They fell on their collective faces, didn't they? But once they got their lives right with the Lord, and once they followed Judah into battle, they were victorious. But the second thing I want to note is even after that victory, it didn't take very long for them to fall back into their old ways, did it? It didn't take the people very long after experiencing this victory in the Lord to stop seeking the counsel of God. And they ended up deeper in sin in the end than they did in the beginning. They ended up committing genocide, mass kidnapping, all these things. And all the while, they think that they're pleasing God. But the reality is, they were doing what was right in their own eyes, not what was right in the Lord's eyes. I think that we need to be cautious of that. We need to stop doing what is right in our own eyes. And we need to seek the Lord. 
We need to read the Bible. We need to ask for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And then we need to do it. We need to do what he says. We need to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Listen, friends. That is the only solution for our land. That is the only hope for us as a nation and as individuals. It's Jesus. It's the gospel message. It's repenting of your sins, putting your hope in Jesus, putting your trust in Jesus, and then encouraging other people to do the same. That's the hope. That's the only hope for our nation, for our people. Do you want to see change? Do you want to see our nation turn back to the Lord? Do you want to see revival? Do you want to see people come to Christ? Well, guess what? It starts with you. And it starts with me. It starts with us putting to death the works of the flesh and crying out to God in repentance and then following Jesus into the battle for the souls of lost men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is a a dark and heavy passage. but there's so much truth in here and so much goodness and light as well. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn from these negative examples and to walk with you, Lord, and to seek your truth. Lord, we pray for each one of us that we wouldn't do what's right in our own eyes, but we would do what's right in your eyes, Lord, and that we walk uprightly before you. Strengthen us, we ask, Lord. Encourage us, empower us, and go before us. We pray that in your name, Jesus.